Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to, to those of us, or those of us, those of you who are a part of us, our family here at Terre, who are joining from home online, wherever you are, glad you are here, glad you are here to worship with us um, through singing praises to our God and now hearing what he has to say to us through his word about many of the same messages and truths we just sang about. So we're going to be continuing on in um, our series in Hebrews this morning, which we took a break from since uh, back in June. Uh, But before we jump into our passage for today, I just want to kind of share a brief little testimony to kind of prepare for the direction we're going this morning. Um, I was a couple years ago with a group of men um, wrestling through some very uh, personal things with them, expressing some places that I felt that I was just falling woefully short as a husband and as a father and a pastor. And I probably sounded contrite and I certainly was sincere, um, but here's what was exposed during that time. And I attribute this to God's grace and the Holy Spirit moving. It was a good thing ultimately. It was not the direction I thought things were going to go. I found, that I, was, I found out I was fi- feeling bad about myself because um, of how far short of a standard in my own heart and mind that I was uh, living by. And the problem with this is that whenever you're measuring your sense of worth and acceptance by how you measure up to any standard, not to mention God's standard, it's a lose-lose situation because if you actually achieve or exceed that standard, then you inevitably will fall into pride. And if you fall short of that standard, then almost inevitably you're going to fall into hopelessness and despair. That's kind of where I was at. Um, Author, pastor who recently passed away, Tim Keller, put it this way. I think this is the same idea. He said, if you make your work your identity and you you, um, succeed, it'll go to your head. If you fail, it'll go to your heart. And that's where I'd found myself at that day. The men that I was with uh, that day pressed me a little bit on that point. Um, They certainly were, uh, you know, compassionate, but they also challenged me with two questions. They said, Daniel, who is it that died on the cross for you? And of course, I've been a Christian for a long time. I was a pastor. I'm like, "Um, Jesus? (laughs) Yeah. And then they asked me, but who have you put on the cross instead when you base your feeling of acceptance on how you're measuring up to the standard you fall short of. And I was like, yep, me. You see, often when I'm feeling hopeless because of my failures, it's because figuratively I've gotten up on that cross and I'm feeling the guilt and shame that rightly should, rightfully should accompany my sin. And at the same time, I'm also functionally denying the one who hung on that cross so that I wouldn't have to feel that guilt and that shame. So what is the role then that I, Daniel Williams, am trying to to fill when I do this? Or rather, what's Jesus' role that I'm in denial of when I try to do this? Well, immediately things that may come to mind for you are trying to be your own savior, Daniel. Or you're trying to be the atoning sacrifice that only Jesus could be for our sins. And those things would be right. But there's a term that's used in our passage today for Jesus that gets unpacked here that may not be as common and familiar to us. And that is Jesus' role as our mediator. Someone who stands between two parties who are in conflict with each other and seeks to reconcile them. So when I try to do this, 
What I'm effectively doing is cutting out the middleman. I'm acting both as the offending party because that is me, the one who is in sin against God, and the intermediary, the mediator who's trying to reconcile myself to God through living up to a standard of holiness that I never could. And that's a problem. But there is a solution. I'm just not living with an awareness of it in those moments, and that is Jesus, who is the one and only and best mediator. So our big idea for today is, in fact, that, that Jesus is the better mediator. And we're going to unpack what that role entails in a moment. But first, let's read that passage together from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. Hebrews 9, 11 to 28. If you don't have a Bible, it won't be on the screen this morning. So you can use one of the blue Bibles, blue hardback Bibles in the pew rack in front of you on page 1193. Hebrews 9, 11 to 28. And uh, if you are able, I would invite you at this point to stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 9, 11 to 23, or 11 through 28, rather, through the end of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls The sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, 
He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, thank you for this good news this morning. I pray that by your spirit, you would take this word and apply it to our hearts, each as we individually need and collectively together as a body here this morning. Be glorified, Lord, through your word in our hearts as we realize the blessing, the glory, the beauty of the gospel in Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for us as our mediator. Please lead and guide and illuminate our hearts and minds in this time and bring your truth to bear on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So just to kind of get us back in the mind frame of thinking through this idea of a mediator, sometimes what we have to do is kind of the noise-canceling headphone analogy of like, what is our understanding of this thing, and how do we kind of need to maybe even cancel that out so that we can hear the biblical idea behind it? Because it would be slightly different here if that might be an understatement. When, when you or I might think of a mediator, we might actually have experience or think of a counseling setting in which there's a counselor who is available to help two people in conflict come to an agreement or to a reconciliation, right? But ultimately, in that context, it's on those two individuals to resolve. It isn't on that mediator or that counselor. They, they can't fix that situation ultimately, even if they can be a facilitator or a helper. Jesus as a mediator is altogether different than this. He stands between the two parties that are in disagreement with each other in order to resolve a dispute. Those two parties are God and man, God and you and I. And by the way, that dispute is one directional. We have nothing to say to God. He has to us to say, you have sinned and rebelled against me. And the difference with Jesus as mediator is that he actually offers not a helpful presence, but the key to reconciliation, without which the dispute couldn't be resolved. So he's not only a facilitator, as we might think in an earthly sense of a mediator, but he is the means of reconciliation by his death. So we still have a part to play, of course, but it's nothing that we do. It's merely entrusting that what Jesus has done for us in order to resolve that dispute. So Hebrews chapter 9 shows us that Jesus is a mediator. It shows us that he's the superior, a superior mediator. So superior to what? Not necessarily to the, the, the version of a mediator I've talked about in the form of a counselor, but one that we're less familiar with as 21st century Christians and Gentiles. He's, Jesus is the superior mediator to these, the, the old covenant sacrificial system and the priests that offered those sacrifices on behalf of the people as a kind of mediator. And secondly, Hebrews 9 shows us what Jesus, his mediation accomplished for us, and that he ushered in a new and a better covenant between God and his people than was received and appreciated by the people under the old covenant, which is good news. It's why we as Christians 
talk about this thing called the gospel, good news. By the end today, I hope you see the good news that it is, that you have Jesus Christ as your mediator. So we'll address both of these things. That is why he's a superior mediator to the old covenant mediation and what that accomplished for us. And we'll do that by identifying the ways Jesus is revealed here as a better mediator. Four things. If you're a note taker, um, I'll list these twice just so you can kind of follow along. And I don't know why these chords are bothering me so much, but God, get them out of the way. Um, Four things. Jesus is a better mediator because of the location of his sacrifice. All right. He's a better mediator because of the quality of his blood. He's a better mediator because of the impact his sacrifice has. And he's a better mediator because of the decisiveness of his death. All of these in comparison to the old covenant, the old way uh, of mediation between God and men through that sacrificial system. So he's a better mediator because of the location of his sacrifice, the quality of his blood, the impact of his sacrifice, and the decisiveness of his death. So firstly, the location of the mediator's sacrifice. This one might sound kind of strange and weird to us as we get into the text again. Um, But it's the idea that Jesus is a better mediator because he actually mediates from heaven directly in the presence of God rather than from earth in the earthly tabernacle or place of God's dwelling that was made by human hands like the Old Testament priests. So our passage speaks of Jesus as a high priest entering through, it says, the great and more perfect tent in verse 11. So what is the great and more perfect tent? tent. Well, the idea of a tent is in reference to the Old Testament tabernacle, the, the, the uh, temporary um, place of worship that Israel was able to set up and tear down as they moved through the wilderness and their wanderings. And so the earthly high priests entered into that structure, a structure made by human hands to do the offerings, to offer the sacrifices. And in the Holy of Holies, which was kind of at the center of that tabernacle, uh, was God's dwelling place on earth, all right? There was a real sense in which God's holiness was present in there. However, it was really representative as well of God's true dwelling place, which is in heaven. Jesus, on the other hand, is our high priest where? On earth? No. Right now, in heaven, interceding on our behalf. And his sacrifice, we're told here in chapter 9, purifies the heavens in some way. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, referring to the earthly tabernacle made by human hands, to be purified with these rites, the sacrifices of goats and bulls. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So what are the heavenly things? Well, it refers simply to Heaven itself is the ultimate tabernacle, God's dwelling place, God's true dwelling place. Why would heaven need to be purified? Well, there's an allusion here to uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15 and forward, where it talks about uh, how Moses, uh, when the law was given and instructions for cleansing uh, due to sin uh, needed to take place, there's instructions given for the need to cleanse the tabernacle itself with the sprinkling of the blood that was shed by these animals. Why? It's just a structure. Like, immaterial things can't sin. But the people did. And their sin, in turn, defiled 
the tabernacle. So they couldn't enter into worship. That's the key is that it prevented them from entering into worship. So the problem was not with the tabernacle per se, but it was with the people who defiled the tabernacle, which is why the tabernacle then needed to be cleansed with the sprinkling of the blood of the animal. So the point is Jesus's sacrifice then cleanses us to make us fit to enter God's tabernacle, God's presence in heaven, not just now, but at the consummation of history. So why is this important? And here's the the part that we might always think about. This world isn't our final home. This version of what it means to be worshiping God isn't our final dwelling place for those who are in Christ. The Apostle John in Revelation 21, speaking of the future of the, the new heavens and the new earth, speaks to this future reality and what it will be like in chapter 21, verses 2 to 3. He says in this vision he has of this future, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God's ultimate purpose is for the uniting of heaven and earth, which doesn't exist in a sense right now, like it will in eternity. And Jesus' sacrifice as part of his high priestly ministry transcends this earth, moves into heaven, making us fit to be a part of that new heavens and that new earth one day. Okay? So Jesus is a better mediator because he mediates for us from heaven rather than from earth, which ultimately grants us access into God's presence and into the new heavens and the new earth in the future. There's a second way in which Jesus is a better mediator, and that is due to the quality of his blood being different than that of the quality of the blood of those animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant. So he's a better mediator because his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, is as superior as the creator is to his creation. And so his blood actually has the power as a result to do what the old covenant could not, which is the next point that we'll get into. Again, verse 12, verses 12 and 14, I'm going to reread those. We're told Jesus enters the holy place not by means of the blood of animals, created things, in other words, but by his own blood. For, for if those old covenant sacrifices, the, the blood spilled of the goats and the bulls, serve to purify the flesh, just talking about this external ritualistic purification, how much more will the blood of Jesus serve to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So this is a frequent technique that if you can remember back to when we were in Hebrews months ago, the author of Hebrews would use the arguments from lesser to greater about how Jesus is better for one reason or another. And his point here is that if blood sacrifices of animals provide this external ritualistic purification, how much more should we expect from the shedding of the blood of the Son of God? The difference in the value of the different kinds of blood is kind of like this. It's like a human to a blade of grass. All right, every day we walk around probably on our property or others where we're crushing hundreds of blades of grass beneath, grass beneath our feet and we think nothing of it. But if a human takes the life of another human, then they may spend life in prison or even receive the death penalty for that. Now that analogy falls short in various ways, but 
It's meant to convey the difference in the the quality of the sacrifice between Jesus and those animals under the old covenant or the creator and his creation. That isn't to say that human life is insignificant, okay? As much as it is to say that God's life is infinitely more significant. And if God's life in the form of Jesus, his son, is infinitely more significant, then God's death in comparison to that of the animals of the Old Testament is also infinitely more significant in what it has the power to accomplish for us. And that'll become especially important in the next point that we get into. But I want to note one other thing about the qualitative difference in the shedding of the blood of those animals under the old covenant from the shedding of Jesus's blood. And that was that Jesus offered himself up willingly, whereas those animals under the old covenant did not. Jesus was a volitional choice to give up his life, to lay down his life for us. It's the idea in Philippians 2 that Jesus was obedient all the way to the point of death and death on a cross. It was a choice that he made in love for you and I, not something he was forced into. And that makes the shedding of his blood far superior to that of the animals. So Jesus is the better mediator because of the quality of his sacrifice, of the shedding of his blood, as, the, as, as superior as the creator is to his creation. But let's talk now about the significance of what was accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice versus those animal sacrifices. In other words, the impact um, of his sacrifice as our mediator. So back kind of in verses 13 and 14 here, there's some overlapping points in those verses. Um, and, and that impact is, is the death that Jesus provided for us, accomplished for us through giving his life wasn't, didn't lead to just external ritualistic cleansing, but internal permanent peace between us and God. Again, verses 13 and 14, if the blood of goats and bulls served to provide this outward ritual purity, how much more should we expect the impact to be on what takes place when the blood of the son of God is shed? as a sacrifice for our sins. And we're told what that impact is in verse 14. We're told that it purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, what is our conscience? In this context, our conscience refers to something that is much deeper than an external. It's something that refers to what happens on a deep heart level. It's a reference to the awareness, to the guilt that comes from breaking God's law, his moral law. So the Old, the Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrificial system couldn't deal with that. It couldn't deal with a person's awareness of their guilt that they had. Right? It dealt with ritual cleansing. Right? It made them technically clean to be able to enter into the tabernacle. But it didn't touch that inner guilt at a heart level. It didn't cleanse the conscience that was riddled with guilt because of sin. And one of the things that keeps a distance between sinful man and God is a guilty conscience over a condemnation or guilt over sin. This is a point that was made beautifully by Isaac Watts in a hymn he penned called Not All the Blood of Beasts. This is the first two lines, and I have to believe he was uh, viewing Hebrews chapter 9 when he wrote these. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. 
See, Jesus' death dealt with guilt, not just externally at a ritualistic level, but on the level of our conscience. This is why the Apostle Paul could say as a part of the good news of the gospel in Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not just legally speaking. That's in our hearts as well on an experiential level. Through Jesus' shed blood, God cleanses our consciences by crediting his son, Jesus' righteousness to us. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. But the guilt of that sin is taken away because of the spiritual transformation that takes place as a heart level when God assures you that uh, you are his and that he loves you despite what you've done based upon what Christ has done for you. Also, that doesn't mean that we'll never feel guilt for things that we've done wrong, but it's a different kind of guilt than the guilt that existed in the old covenant or than the guilt that exists for someone who's not in Christ. It's a guilt that comes from grieving the spirit of God or from knowing we've hurt others. And it's a kind of guilt that compels us to make things right, but it's, we don't make things right for God's forgiveness. We already have that. Christ's shedding of his blood has accomplished that for us. Rather than there being a fundamental separation between us and God because of our sin, it's more like a temporal separation exists while we're grieving his heart. But it's not this pervasive, relentless guilt and lack of peace that exists between us and God that has been abolished and taken care of through faith in the one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so that leads us to this Next uh, and last point, which is that Jesus is the better mediator because of the decisiveness of his death in comparison with those Old Testament or Old Covenant sacrifices. In verses 25 and 26, the high priests under the Old Covenant had to offer sacrifices again and again and again and so on and so forth to cover whatever the latest batch of sins were that were committed by the people. In other words, there was a perpetual nature to that old covenant sacrificial system. Honestly, it reminds me of what I shared up front in my own testimony that I'm tempted to regularly. That instead of relying upon what Christ has done for me, I can make the mistake of repeatedly going back to judge myself by that moral standard in my heart and mind to either acquit myself or condemn myself by it. Again and again, I'm trying to justify myself. Again and again, I'm trying to functionally be my own mediator, to be like those priests who went back again and again to offer sacrifices on the altar to ritually remove the guilt of the people. But that's just a surface-level thing. It's never going to ultimately solve the problem that we have when we approach Christ that way. But Jesus' death, on the other hand, was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His death offers a decisive kind of forgiveness once for all. We read about it in verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, here's where this gets so interesting and powerful. There's this strange saying in verses 25 and 26. I'll read that again. It says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with, the, with blood not his own. For then he, that is Jesus, would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. Why? What does that mean? Why would Jesus have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world if he was like those priests under the old covenant? 
because there was all those sins of the people that existed and lived before Jesus came that he would have to have repeatedly died for from the start of when sin entered the world. So here's the implication of that. Did his sacrifice just affect everything from the point Jesus came in history on forward? No. It's so potent. It's so powerful. It's so decisive that it reached back to the beginning, the foundation of the world, as well as reaching forward all the way to the end of the world. His death covers all sins, past, present, and future. By the way, kind of as an aside, this is why Abraham, those of you who are familiar with his story and even what the Apostle Paul writes of him in the New Testament, that's why Abraham, who lived a couple of thousands of years before Christ, could be said to be reckoned, made right, righteous by his faith. Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, when he came at that point in history, reached all the way back to that point in time. It was not temporarily bound. So Jesus is the better mediator because his death dealt decisively with all our sins, past, present, and future. And if you grasp that, it will change you. Some may worry that that'll lead to antinomianism, which is a a heresy, where it's this idea that Christ died for our sins. So now Christians can do whatever they want, live it up. You'll be forgiven, so just do whatever you want. I mean, Paul's own message of the gospel was confused in this way by people, which is why he writes in Romans 6.1 that some were saying, well, let us sin so that grace may abound then, right? And Paul's like, no, emphatically no. But here's the thing. If I don't preach the gospel, if you don't teach or read the gospel in such a way that's such good news that somebody mistakes it like those in Romans 6 1 then you're probably not believing the gospel rightly I'm probably not preaching the gospel rightly it's that incredible I'll also say that if you've truly received the gospel you're not going to make that mistake because the the fruit of realizing the decisiveness of Jesus's death And that it covers and forgives our sins past, present, and future doesn't lead to presuming upon God's grace and taking advantage of it. It leads to a greater desire to live for him, not a greater desire to live for yourself and just indulge. The Apostle Paul, in so many words, kind of preaches this gospel in Romans 3.1 when he says, God's kindness leads to repentance. Not God's kindness leads to self-indulgence, right? There's a risk that God is taking with the gospel in how it could be received. But that's not on him, that's on us. Have we really received and understood this gospel rightly? The moment we try to make the gospel contingent on something that we do ourselves for fear of people taking advantage is the moment we remove what makes the gospel so radical and undeserved. So to come full circle here where we started, Jesus is the best mediator He's the only mediator. There was a time actually under the old covenant when in a sense, there was other mediators, right? The earthly priests had involvement as mediators of a kind between man and God. And there was a time in which animals were used, unwilling participants in the sacrifices. But under the new covenant, there's a Trinitarian involvement that we see here in our passage that takes any part we used to play as human beings or as creatures of God's creation out of our hands 
and is taken on willingly by the very God with whom the dispute exists because of our sin. Let me read to you one more time verses 13 and 14. Listen for our Trinitarian God to show up on our behalf here. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the full Godhead, all in view to deal themselves with the problem that is ours so that all that is left for us to do is to trust that he is who he says he is and has done what he said he's done for us and to live in light of that. Nothing that we could do on our own would be sufficient to mediate between ourselves and God. No amount of good works or law-keeping makes us righteous enough to be able to stand before our holy God. Without a mediator, we are destined, as the scriptures say, to spend eternity in hell, for by ourselves salvation from sin is impossible. But there is hope. As the Apostle Paul says to his understudy Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray in light of that. God, we we stand or we sit in awe, I hope, this morning, and that you'd work that in our hearts if we don't. Stand in awe of these two extremes, of your holiness and of your grace. Of your holiness, we recognize the severity of the punishment that's deserving of sin taken upon by Jesus himself. And if I'm honest, if we're honest, at times we probably think that's overkill. Forgive us for that, Lord. And we stand in awe and marvel at your grace that the punishment fell upon yourself rather than us. Lord, thank you for having provided a mediator, Jesus Christ, your son, who does what we could never do for ourselves. We pray these things in his name. Amen.